All right. Anyhow, ladies, it's so good to be with you this morning. Um, I did ask Terry as we were getting dressed to come. I said, now, um, I'm coming to teach. Um, what, what, what do I get out of this? And she looked at me and she goes, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so that's good. Uh, let's pray and then we'll dive into uh, Acts chapter 2. And so, hon, you, how long do I really have? I mean, surely I'm not going to go to 1130. 11 and you have group till 1130? All right, let's see if we can. Because I want to try to allow some time maybe for some Q&A for what I may not have covered. So um, not that I will have the the A part of the Q, but uh, I'll do my best to to try to clarify maybe or add whatever I perhaps uh, might have left out. Because obviously this is a huge subject, a huge topic. The Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the third part of the Trinity. So there's a lot of information, obviously, even in an hour that we won't be able to sufficiently cover. But I'm going to do my best to, uh, to highlight uh, as much as I can. So let's pray first. Father, we just want to thank you for your goodness, for your grace, for your love. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We pray today as we study this together that you'll just be glorified in our midst. I thank you for these ladies. I thank you for my wife, and Lord, how you have uh, just continued to use her over the years, just in ministry here, serving the ladies of our church, and I thank you for her. I thank you, Father, for all the group leaders and all those who are just a part of this study and this fellowship. I thank you, Father, for the, the strength of uh, the women in our church. pray that you would just continue to bless and use them and to help them in their homes and uh, in being moms and um, maybe those who are single and, uh, Father, just in whatever place or stage of life they find themselves in, I pray that you would be a blessing and an encouragement to them today. And we just love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. First, I want you to know that, uh, you know, Terry didn't ask me to, to share with you to fix anything that she said. In fact, I went back and I listened to the podcast that she shared with you last week I thought she did a great job. There's nothing I'm, I'm in here to correct. Um, but I suppose the reason why uh, we talked about and she asked if I'd come and share with you is because this, let's just be real. The topic of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, has been one of the most divisive and controversial subjects in the history of the church. Why is that? I think in part because Satan just loves to do whatever he can to divide good, godly people. And he will even use something as wonderful as the gift of the Holy Spirit to cause division and uh, and controversy and get people angry and fighting and all of this kind of stuff that happens, unfortunately, in the church today. I will let you know that I am not approaching the study of the Holy Spirit from a personal pre-arranged idea of the Holy Spirit uh, because my background growing up was in the United Methodist Church and we didn't talk about the Holy Spirit, okay? Now, those of you have a, how many have a Methodist background? Let me see your hands. All right. So you got saved too. And, uh, but, but I can tell you, you know, look, the symbol of the United Methodist Church is the cross with the flame. But yet the flame part, we just never talked about. So, you know, it's not like I'm sharing from the perspective of, oh, this is how I grew up and this is what our tradition was and this is what I learned because we just did not learn. Now, maybe they do in some churches. 
uh, that were a part of the United Methodist Church, just not in mine. And so I've had to approach this as I grew in my faith when I got saved at 15 and just kind of had to have a fresh perspective of what does God say on this subject. I mention that because I want to encourage those of you who might have traditions that will uh, need to perhaps give way to what the Bible says. Okay, A lot of us will carry our own traditions into and our own history and our own past into the present. And fortunately for many of us, not everything bad about our traditions. Wonderful parts about what we've learned and how we grew up and what we were taught and what our tradition was. But that should never trump what God says in His Word. And sometimes we need fresh eyes to look at Scripture and not to just always see it in light of, well, what was I taught and what was I taught and what did I believe and what did my mom say, what did my grandparents say. It's really, what did Jesus say? And, and sometimes kind of shaking free from whatever our tradition was or our past was or our predetermined idea of something is, we have to approach it in a brand new way. And I think that obviously relates here to, to the Holy Spirit. Uh, some of you, you know, in the course of going through this study, there are going to be times that you might say to yourself or maybe say to somebody else, this isn't just, I just don't believe this. And I just want to encourage you that you, what you believe probably has to give way to what the Bible says. And I understand that good, godly people can have sincere disagreements, and we won't always agree about everything. Hopefully we will agree about the essentials related to salvation, and there's no debate there. Jesus is the only way to be saved, virgin birth, the inerrancy of Scripture, and He's coming again. And as it relates to the gifts of the Spirit, there are some of you who, who will say, you know, I just don't believe the gifts are available today. I, I do believe they're available, and I'll, and I'll show you why they're still available. But we can still have fellowship over that. That's not a salvation issue. And, and there's going to be differences in the body of Christ. So I'm not, you know, unity is not uniformity. And what we need to pray for is unity in the body of Christ. But that doesn't mean we're all identical and we all are exactly the same. So it's okay if, you know, you might, in the course of going through Acts, and you, you might hear something I say, or maybe Terry will say, or a group leader will say, and you go, I just don't believe that. And all right, as long as you are doing your best to embrace what God's Word says, that's what is key. There's going to be some slight variances and some slight differences on, on a lot of different non-salvation issues. This is one of them. Um, we're talking here about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2 talks about the day of Pentecost. And I want to kind of get a running start into chapter 2, so I'm going to ask... I know you covered this a little bit last week, but I just want you to go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. And uh, I just want to restate some things and as we get a running start into chapter 2 of Acts. But first, back here in John 14. In John chapter 14, Jesus is having a very personal, private moment with his disciples, his 12. In fact, in most of your Bibles, John 14, 15, 16, and 17, if you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, it's almost all entirely in red. Because these are the words of Jesus from John 14 to John 17, where he's having just private conversation with his disciples. And a lot of what he's going to say in these chapters have to do with the Holy Spirit, or the Comforter, or the Counselor. And he says in John 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, 
And he will give you another counselor. King James says comforter. The Greek word is parakletos, meaning one who comes alongside. I will give you another counselor, this is the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be, future tense, in you. Present tense, he's with you. But Jesus says, future tense, he will be in you. And this uh, enlightens us to the first twofold, twofold aspect of the threefold ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the first two here is the with and the in. I know Terry touched on this a little bit, but again, just to kind of get a running start. So the Holy Spirit is with us when we are not a believer, when we are being wooed. When we were being that, how you would describe, when you first got saved, you felt that tug, or you felt that unction, or you felt that urging, you felt that pull, or whatever, however you might describe it. That's the with part of the Holy Spirit. He's pulling you, he's, he's wooing you, he's leading you into relationship with Jesus. When you actually receive Christ as your Savior, say, Lord, I want you to come in my life. Now he comes in. Now that's the in part here. He is with you, the Greek word is para, that's the preposition for with. Then he is in you. The Greek word is spelled almost the same, except with an E, E-N, in, N. And, he, and you get Jesus in you. You get the Holy Spirit in you, because you can't separate the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You get God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in you when you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you are born again. Now, when did that happen for the disciples? When did they actually get born again. When did they get saved? Well, now go to John chapter 20. See, remember in John 14, Jesus has not yet been to the cross. So while his disciples believed that he was the Messiah, when did they actually put their faith and trust in him as the risen Lord Jesus who conquered sin and death on the cross? It wasn't in John 14. They couldn't be saved because they couldn't believe in, in the finished work of Christ. It hadn't been finished yet. It's John 20 now. Now in John chapter 20, Jesus has already risen from the dead, and he appears to his disciples. They're meeting together. First day of the week, it tells us on, in verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. He's showing them the marks of his crucifixion. But he's now in a glorified, in a resurrected body. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Notice, and he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. It was at this moment, ladies, that they, for all intents and purposes, got saved. It was here that they were born again. And when Jesus breathed on them, it's the Greek word emphaseo. We get our English word emphysema when you can't breathe. And when he breathed on them, they received the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit came in them. So the Spirit is with us, wooing us to salvation. The Spirit comes in us when we get saved. Now this is where, for some of you, with all due respect, your tradition says you got it all. He's with you, and now he comes in you when you get saved, and that's all you need as far as the Holy Spirit. If that were true, then why is it Jesus says to the same people, 
wait in Jerusalem for the gift my father promised. Now go to Acts chapter 1, because here's the third part of the third threefold ministry of the Holy Spirit. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus, the Bible says, has been resurrected from the dead for 40 days. It tells us this in Acts 1.3. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So after Jesus rises from the dead, he remains on earth for another 40 days, and then Acts tells us that he's taken up into heaven from the Mount of Olives. But before he goes, he says to them in Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and there's that Greek word epi, E-P-I, upon you, on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, this is why it's so important to link John 14, John 20, and Acts 1. Because if the disciples received all there was in relation to the Holy Spirit in John chapter 20, when Jesus breathed on them, why in the world would he say in Acts 1, you have to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit? Because the fullness of the Holy Spirit is different from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's critical to understand this. When you get saved, you get the indwelling of God's Spirit. Because when you receive Jesus, you get God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And He indwells you. But He doesn't necessarily empower you. That's what the baptizing work of the Spirit is. And that's why there's a separate and distinct work. And this is what Jesus is referring to here before He ascends into heaven. You cannot look at the Bible and say, well, John 20, they got the Holy Spirit. That's all you need. No, because in Acts 1, Jesus is saying, now wait, there's a gift, there's an outpouring, there's a baptizing work of my Spirit that is yet to come. So that's what the Acts now is about. It's about this second work. And I don't really care what you call it, second work of grace, second act, you know, uh, the, the overflowing work, the baptizing work of the Spirit. It doesn't really matter what you call it. The question is, have you received it? That's really what it's about. So, again, I would just respectfully say, for those of you who believe, no, when I got saved, I got everything there was to the Holy Spirit. That's not what Jesus says. He told his own disciples you didn't get everything in relation to it. And then he says what he does there in Acts 1.8. So it is the Holy Spirit with para, N E N, he's in you when you get saved, and he comes upon you with his baptizing work. Now, I want to say a couple of things to kind of uh, tie some loose ends before we look into chapter 2, and that is this. Um, the, the upon work of the Holy Spirit, that baptizing work of God's Spirit, is most often in the New Testament, referred to as a separate and distinct work uh, that is separate from salvation. That there is a second work, there's an additional work. And I'm going to give you an example, but don't, don't lose heart because there's also a concurrent work. But I want you to go to Acts chapter 8. We'll come back to Acts 2 eventually, but I might need 11.30, we'll see. Um, but I want you to notice here in Acts chapter 8... And you have um, Philip, who is evangelizing in the region of Samaria. And there's this sorcerer named Simon. He's, he's demonic. He's not saved. 
And so in Acts 8, verse 9, it says, Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. <clears throat> he boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Now, just stop right there. What, what is just the simplicity of Scripture? Okay, you don't need commentaries sometimes to like dig out what's the, me what's the meaning behind this. Just look at what I just read there. You have Simon, this demonic guy, he's a sorcerer. You have Philip, the evangelist. He comes in, the region of Samaria. It tells us clearly that Philip, in verse 12, preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And men and women were baptized. So what does that mean about what was happening to the people in Samaria? What does it mean? They were getting saved. They were believing in Jesus Christ. They got saved. They were believers now, and they were getting water baptized. This is water baptism as evidence, not that you need baptism to be saved, but it's evidence of your salvation experience. Now, did they get everything? They got saved. They got water baptized. No, keep reading. Verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon, there's that word upon, any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Everybody see this? They believed the Word of God. They are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. These are born-again believers. Why then, if they got everything, was it necessary for Peter and John to go to Samaria and pray that they might receive the Holy Spirit, except that what the Scripture is telling us is there's a separate and distinct work of God's Spirit. It is the upon work. It is the apie. It is the overflowing that is separate from the indwelling. But when you go to Acts 10, jump over to Acts 10... This is the occasion when Cornelius, who's a, who's a Gentile, this is the first time a Gentile gets saved in the New Testament. He's a Gentile, he's a Roman centurion, he's a believer of God, but he doesn't have a relationship with God. I'm, and this is a really long story in chapter 10, so I'm going to just paraphrase it and then we'll, we'll jump into the part where they get filled with the Spirit. And, and so God, through a series of using an angel to, to speak to Cornelius, and then God speaks in a dream to the Apostle Peter, and so God's working at both ends of the equation, which is very important. Sometimes when people say to you, you know, the Holy Spirit told me this about you. Really? Well, God has a, a direct line to you too. And so what people say to you, if the Lord spoke to me and I have a word for you, it should be confirmation, never direction. Okay, what God is doing here in Acts chapter 10, he's working with Cornelius, sending an angel, speaking to, and he's also giving a dream and a vision to Peter so that both of them are on the same page. It's not one and then surprising the other. When Peter goes to the house of Cornelius in obedience to the leading of the Lord, Peter just begins to preach the resurrected Christ. 
Um, here in Acts 10, verse 39. He says, We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. He's just preaching Christ and Christ crucified. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now look, Peter's just preaching. Cornelius and his family, his whole household, they're sitting there, they're listening. Peter's just expounding the gospel, the good news, talking about the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how Jesus can save you and forgive your sins. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on, there's that a, a P word again, came upon, on, all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter, these were fellow Jews who traveled with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Now notice this. The house of Cornelius, this family of Gentiles, they become believers. Their heart is quickened. They're hearing the gospel. They're hearing the good news. Their heart is quickened. They become believers. And at that same time, they are also filled with the Holy Spirit, and they start speaking in tongues. The Holy Spirit can also come as a separate, distinct work, but concurrent with salvation. It doesn't have to happen a week later, a year later, ten years later. It can. And we see that most of the time as an example in Scripture. But it can also, the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit can also come concurrent with salvation at the same time. Now notice between just these two stories, Acts 8 and Acts 10. In both, these are questions, and there's no trick questions here. In both of these stories... Acts 8 and Acts 10, is it recorded in Scripture that both groups of people spoke in tongues? I hear yes, and I hear no. Did they speak in tongues in chapter 10? We just read it, yes. Did they speak in tongues in chapter 8? It does not tell us that they did. Here's another question. When they, those in Samaria in chapter 8 and Cornelius and his family in chapter 10 were listening and receiving, did they receive the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands? Yes, they did in 8. No, they didn't in 10. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is because people put the Holy Spirit in a box. They say, well, in order to get baptized by the Holy Spirit, it has to be the laying on of hands. Everybody has to speak in tongues. Really? No? N nobody spoke in tongues in chapter 8. And I will, hear, I will hear people who will read chapter 8, and this is what they say to me. Yeah, but Simon the sorcerer wanted the giving of the Holy Spirit because he saw something. It says he saw something, and so he must have seen. It's inferred that they spoke in tongues because he saw what they had, and that's what he wanted. Well, that's a leap. It doesn't say that he heard... It says that he saw. There was something about their changed lives and their countenance that was noticeable, and he wanted that. But it doesn't say that they spoke in tongues, and you cannot infer what the Bible is silent about. So in chapter 8, it doesn't say they speak in tongues. In chapter 10, it does say they speak in tongues. In chapter 8, Peter and John laid their hands on them. 
In chapter 10, nobody lays hands on Cornelius. They're just sitting there listening to the gospel, and all of a sudden they get saved because their heart connects with the message. They believe, receive, and are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Does everybody see this? So in other words, it's important for you to understand. Some of you say, well, I feel like I'm less of a Christian. I don't have that particular gift, the gift of tongues. It's only a gift. It is not the gift. It is not the gift that marks a person as being filled with the Spirit. It is a gift that marks the filling of the Holy Spirit. But it is not the gift. And it is interesting why that particular gift has become so touted as to be the most esteemed and prized gift of all. Do you know that the gift of tongues is only mentioned three times in the whole book of Acts? Only three. Acts 2, Acts 10, and Acts 19. This is the only three times. 28 chapters, about 30 years of church history, and it's only mentioned three times. And Paul diminishes it as a gift, especially in the church, when in Corinthians he says, I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 words in a tongue. He talks about his own private personal prayer language and how he prays in the Spirit and he prays with his mind. He sings with the Spirit and he sings with his, with his mind. But for some reason, this particular gift has been elevated to a level that has done a great disservice to people in the body of Christ. Because some people who have it now think they have like this merit badge. It's almost like this cosmic poker game, you know. You know, well, I see you have the gift of healing and interpretation, and I'll raise you the gift of tongues. It's like, what in the world? And then on the flip side, it's people who don't have that particular gift, and they think, I guess I, I may not have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um... What is the evidence, then, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, there's a reason when Paul writes in a concentrated way in the book of 1 Corinthians about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, chapter 12 lifts the, lists the gifts, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 14 lists, lists prophecy in tongues in particular, the gifts. But primarily, chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians is about the function of the gifts. Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians is the list. Chapter 14 is the function and the practice. But what is nestled right in between is chapter 13. And that's where Paul starts out by saying, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not what? Love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just making noise. The real evidence of a person who has been baptized with the Holy Spirit is agape love. It's agape love. Because, you know, you and I have seen Christians who are like mean as rattlesnakes. And we're like, no Holy Spirit there. Right? Because it's love. And don't tell me that they speak in tongues. That doesn't matter. If they have not love, they're just making noise. It's genuine Christ-like love, the agape love, that is the, the evidence that someone is filled with the Spirit. And then God can choose to give whatever gifts He wills to distribute them among the body of Christ. But Paul even says in Corinthians, do we all prophesy? He was, re he was giving a whole list of rhetorical questions. I think it's chapter 14. Do we all prophesy? Do we all have gifts of healings? Do we all speak in tongues? What's the implied answer? No, we don't all. But together, all the gifts are available within the body of Christ, and they work together to build up the body and to glorify the Lord. So that's like a lengthy, it's a half-hour background to what we need to really look at here. But let's go to chapter 2 now, because I do want to still allow some time for some questions. But um, what I'm going to do with chapter 2 is I'm just going to really primarily look at the first 13 verses, and then I'll just kind of highlight the rest of the chapter. 
because the first 13 verses are um, uh, some of the most uh, debated verses. And so it starts out here in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them, all, notice, all, were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts and, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring, notice this, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Now, isn't this interesting? Those last two statements are indicative of the common ways that people approach the study of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In verse 12, it says, Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? There are people who legitimately are interested in learning. What does this mean? And I take it that that is all of you. That's one approach. What does this whole thing mean about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the giving of the Spirit and speaking in tongues? What does this mean? That's a wonderful thing to ask. But there's also another approach, unfortunately, and it's the next verse, verse 13, some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. And you see that too, unfortunately, in the body of Christ today. People dismiss it. People make fun of people who, who uh, talk about the baptism or who have the gifts of the Spirit. And some circles of Christianity, you know, really downplay it, discourage it, even go so far as to say, you know, if you, if you speak in tongues, that's of the devil. And you have all this kind of stuff that's just terrible and controversial and destructive in the body of Christ. So... I pray and I believe that you are here because you're more along the ones who are amazed and you're wanting to know what more does this mean and study. And for those of you who already know, just to dig deeper, rather than the rest, the other part of the crowd that just are dismissing, well, these guys are drunk. You know, that's all that this is. There's just nonsense. Now, um, Pentecost. This is not, a lot of times because we talk about the day of Pentecost and attached to the giving of the Holy Spirit, that we think this is like the first time that. Pentecost ever happened. No, they've been practicing Pentecost for every year for the last 1,450 years. Okay, Pentecost was a regular celebration. Now, Pentecost in Hebrew is called Shavuot, and it was the celebration of the giving of the law. Now, there's an interesting parallel here, so follow this with me. When you look into Exodus chapter 32, when the law was given, the Ten Commandments particularly, Mount Sinai, the whole thing, the tablets of stone, and Moses comes down Mount Sinai, he has the tablets of stone. What's the first thing that happens when he comes down with the Ten Commandments the first time? You had to go back up and get a second pair, remember? Because the first time he comes down, what has been happening in his absence? Party hardy. Everybody's given into revelry. They're worshiping the golden calf. He smashes the stones. And what happens that day? 
they strap a sword. Moses calls and rallies. Anybody who's on the Lord's side, come follow me. Come rally to me. The tribe of Levi comes to him. The directive was strap a sword on your hip and go throughout the camp and kill your brothers. And on that day, it tells us in Exodus 32, anybody know the trivia? How many died that day? 3,000. 3,000 people died that day. The giving of the law, 3,000 people died. Pentecost was an annual celebration, a reminder of the giving of the law. And they had been practicing this for 1,450 years. Till you get here to Acts chapter 2. Now the meaning of Pentecost changes. Now it's not the giving of the law, it's the giving of the Spirit. And about how many get saved? 3,000. Isn't that interesting? You see, Paul says that the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. The heavy burden and regulations and the rules and commandments, they're not to be thrown away. We're to honor God. We're to understand the moral code of God. But the letter kills. The Spirit gives life. When the, when the giving of the law was given on Mount Sinai, 3,000 people died. The day that the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, about 3,000 get saved in this chapter. So there's an interesting parallel there of the contrast between the law and the Spirit. You cannot get to salvation through just obedience to the law. That's heavy. That's burdensome. It only leads to death if you try to do it in your own righteousness. But if you accept the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ and you're, you're saved and filled with His Spirit, it's all part of that life-giving work of God. And so you see 3,000 get saved on this day. So it is the giving of the law originally, but now ever since Acts 2, Pentecost has taken on a new meaning, at least for us, and that is for the giving of the Spirit. And um, they're in the upper room here, the 120, that's what we're talking about. Back in chapter 1, it tells us about 120 there. Among them, Jesus is Mother Mary, and that's the last reference you see to her in the Bible. So she probably dies shortly thereafter, but she's part of those who get filled with the Spirit. Uh, and it tells us that they had to wait there in Jerusalem for the giving of the Holy Spirit. All right, now do some math with me. Pentecost is a Greek word that means 50th day. 50th day. Because it followed 50 days after the previous feast on the calendar, which was Passover. Passover, they started counting the 50 to mark for the day of Pentecost. They started counting the first day. This is a little tricky, but... Follow this. You're a sharp crowd. <laughs> they started counting day one was the Sabbath after the day of Passover. The Sabbath after the day of Passover corresponded to what event related to Jesus? The resurrection. Jesus Christ rose on the, sa on, on the day after the Sabbath following Passover. Okay? I said it wrong. I said the Sabbath. But it's the day after the Sabbath. That makes it Sunday. Sabbath is Saturday. Passover, depending on how you parse the days, I think it was a Thursday that year. Most people say it's Friday because it's a good Friday, but it's probably a Thursday, and that's another day for a Bible study. <laughs> so you have a Thursday, Jesus is crucified. You have him rising on the day after the Sabbath, which is that Sunday. That's the first day you start counting 50 till you get to Pentecost. Now, Jesus rises on day one. How long, we just read it a moment ago, was Jesus on the earth until he ascended? Forty days. Do your math. How long did they wait? Ten days. Everybody follow that. Fifty days from the time Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus is on earth for forty days, then he ascends and he says, by the way, wait. And Pentecost is fifty days after the day that Jesus first rose from the dead. 
That means the difference is 10 days. They waited 10 days. 10 days just kind of waiting on the Lord and praying and not knowing what to expect. And, you know, because nothing like this has ever happened before. Yes, the Holy Spirit had been given in the Old Testament on assignment. You see, David was filled with the Holy Spirit. Moses was filled with the Holy Spirit. Joshua was filled with the Holy Spirit. But that was on assignment. That's different. Now it is available upon all who believe and receive. And they wait 10 days just kind of just tearing and waiting and praying and not knowing what's going to happen. And the Bible describes that, that the Holy Spirit comes upon them like tongues of fire. So it's just like these fiery wisps that were just kind of like all of a sudden falling upon them. Now look, you don't see that particular pattern happening again. So don't make it a pattern. Don't go home and say, unless I see fire, I don't know that this is going to really happen. But it was just a particular manifestation. And they heard what sounded like a violent wind blowing. And so the Holy Spirit, it's kind of interesting because the word spirit in the Hebrew is ruach and it means wind, it means spirit. And so the Holy Spirit comes in like a rushing wind, and they hear this sound. Um, and I heard a story one time that actually Pastor Chuck tells about a lady in his congregation who was just desperately wanting the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and she was home praying and, and uh, seeking the Lord, and all of a sudden it was this violent wind that she described. She said, there's just violent wind. And she said, and I believe and I received. And in her case, she said, I started speaking in tongues. And it was just like Acts chapter 2, this violent wind. Come to find out it was her furnace. And it was just like, she was by, by the vent and it just burst on. And <laughs> but what it did was, it was something that just triggered her faith. And, she, and it just, maybe it's a little kickstart she needed to exercise her faith to receive and believe. But anyway, it was just her furnace. So, but they're in this upper room, tongues of fire, violent wind, and it says they were all filled with the Spirit. And in this case, it does say that they speak in tongues. And the crowd who was gathered there for the Feast of Passover, and then they linger around for Pentecost, they're amazed because they hear them speaking in their own language. Now, there's a couple of important things about the gift of tongues. First of all, the gift of tongues is always a known language just never to the person speaking it. It's a known language, but never to the person speaking it. All of these other, and when you count them up, there's about 15 nationalities represented here. They say, well, we hear them speaking in our own dialectos, our own dialect, our own native language. And um, that's why they could hear these, these men. But tongues is never known to the person who is speaking it. It is, it is God's gift... And the best way that, that it can be explained, it is, it is God's gift, and I don't mean this to sound like, you know, and this is kind of the accusation we sometimes get where people say, you know, Christians are just, you know, we're ignorant people and it's just all blind faith. No, but hear me on this. The gift of tongues in large part is to bypass our intellect so that our heart can connect with God. And that's why you don't know that particular language you're speaking. Somebody else does somewhere, but you don't. Uh, and it is, it is the way of kind of just connecting the heart with heaven. And so God gives you the supernatural ability to praise him and to pray to him that bypasses the intellect. Because how many of you can say, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but there are times that you wanted to communicate something, but you lacked the words and you didn't really know how to frame it. And, you, and I mean, just think of the many conversations you've had with your husband. And, you've, and, you've, and he doesn't get it. And how can I say this again so that he can get this? And I don't understand. And I just wish there was a way that I could just connect my heart to your heart. You ever thought that? 
or my mind to your mind. Well, this is what God has given the gift of tongues in large part so we can connect with him, the heart of God, heart to heart, and bypassing the intellectual uh, breakdown of words and language and parsing out all these different expressions. So it is a way to praise him, but bypassing just all of the language barriers. Because language is a wonderful thing, but it's also a very limiting thing. Language is very limiting. And you can only communicate to the degree that you have the ability to express certain words. And uh, so that's in part why that gift is given. I have heard people say, and it just isn't biblical, I'm sorry. I've heard people say that God gives the gift of tongues to missionaries to go evangelize people in their native tongue. You don't see that anywhere in the Bible. You just don't see that. Now, could God do that? Sure. God could do anything. You could show up on a mission field and you don't know Zimbabwe and all of a sudden you're speaking the language of Zimbabwe and you are able to communicate, connect. But that's, that might be a supernatural thing that God chooses to do. That is not the gift of tongues. That might be something God chooses to do. That is not the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues all through Scripture is a prayer-praise language. A prayer-praise language. And you need to go more. We don't have time to go into it today. But read a lot of 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. And look how Paul describes it as, I pray with my mind and I pray with my spirit. I speak in tongues and then I speak with my mind. So it's a prayer-praise language. You never see it used in the Bible as an evangelistic tool. Um, you never see it in the Bible as a way for two foreign people to connect on the same language level. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is the one gift that is both glorifying to God and edifying to the one who is practicing it. So these different nationalities hear this, hear their own language, and now some of them are curious and others are dismissing it. And what does Peter do? He's going to get up here and he's going to address the crowd. And he's going to preach Christ and Christ crucified. Uh, again, now, what language is he speaking in? Well, it doesn't specifically say, but for all these different nationalities who come together and for them to hear an intelligible sermon that is preached, it, it no doubt has to be the common language of the day, which would have been the Greek language. That's why the New Testament was written in Greek. It's written in Koine Greek, which is, is not a, a high-class Greek. It is a common man's language because Greek was the common language of the day that would connect the whole known world at the time. Everybody spoke Greek. Uh, Jesus probably spoke Greek, Latin, Aramaic for sure. That was his native tongue. And New Hebrew because the Old Testament scriptures were written in Hebrew. So he was probably well-versed in four languages. But Aramaic was really the native tongue of the people of the day. That was the common language of the Jews. But Greek was the common man's language during the Roman Empire period, even still carried over from the Greek Empire. So he's getting up and he's preaching in a language. And what does he do? He goes to Joel chapter 2 to validate their spiritual experience. This is always important. Scripture always needs to validate whatever signs and wonders and gifts that you are seeking or been exposed to or curious about. If you don't have a biblical basis, don't seek it. And one of the best tests is simply to ask yourself, did Jesus teach it? And by teaching it, either he spoke it or practiced it by example. Did Jesus teach it? Did the early church practice it? And did the epistles support it? That's a great test as to whether or not you should seek or embrace some spiritual manifestation. Did Jesus teach it? 
Did the early church practice it? And do the epistles support it? If you pass all of that, embrace it. But there's been some strange phenomena that have been floating around churches in the name of the Holy Spirit that I think a lot of it is just simply not. And, I, and years ago, when they had the big Toronto blessing movement, you know, I had people coming up to me saying, you know, don't you want to go to Toronto and get in on the blessing? I said, first of all, if I have to go to Toronto for anything, I'm sorry. <laughs> but secondly, I said, okay, wait. Then the whole blessing thing was there was a lot of laughing in the spirit, and there was even some bizarre stuff called barking in the spirit, okay? Yeah. What does a church become? A big zoo. But... Uh, but I, I said, okay, now wait, this whole laughing in the spirit thing. Did Jesus teach that? No. Well, did the early church, did the early church practice that? No. Did the epistle support it? No. Then I don't want to seek it. And this person knew that there's no biblical basis for it, but nevertheless, it's like, well, I heard somebody got this. I saw somebody experience this. That's great. But I'm not going to seek it. And I'm not going to advocate that others should seek it if I don't have a biblical basis for what you've just seen or heard. This is exactly what Peter is doing. They say, these guys are just drunk. Peter says, no, they're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Well, I find that funny. That's just me. Okay? It's like, you know, maybe if it was happy hour, maybe. But it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. A little too early to be buzzed. And then what does he do? He takes them right to the Scripture says, no, no, no. This is what was prophesied. Verse uh, 15. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quotes from Joel chapter 2. He uses Scripture to validate the experience. Very important. And he quotes from Joel chapter 2. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun, notice the link here, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, he's quoting Joel chapter 2, but he could have stopped at any point in there, except he's making a connection for us. He's saying to us that the outpouring of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the manifestation of God's Spirit being poured out onto all flesh will continue until what time? The return of Christ. Because that's the way the passage ends. He starts talking about the sun will be turned to darkness. That's the tribulation period. The moon to blood. That's what Revelation talks about. Before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Again, when some people's tradition says, no, I think that when the last apostle died, you know the old phrase of the gifts petered out with Peter, right? That's what some traditions say, that when the last of the apostles, it was only meant for the apostles, and when they died, then the gifts ceased. I, I, don't, I don't see that in Scripture. In fact, Peter's making the connection that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will continue up until Jesus Christ returns. Now, I will tell you that the whole idea of that the gifts of the Spirit ceased is a relatively new opinion that has only emerged in the last century. The previous 19 centuries of church history combined never thought that it meant that the gifts ended at the, at the end of the apostolic age. Why is it that some believe this? It's from one verse. One verse. Here it is. It's 1 Corinthians 13.10. 1 Corinthians 13.10 says, When that which is perfect is come, 
that which is imperfect will pass away. And in, and in that passage in 1 Corinthians 13, the context is about the gifts, because Paul's talking about the, some of the gifts of the Spirit. And then he adds that when that which is perfect, when perfection comes, that which is imperfect will pass away. And about the last hundred years or so, there was a movement that started, and I'll tell you, just, this is just a matter of church history fact, in 1906, when the Azusa Street Revival happened in, in California, and the Holy Spirit just fell in a powerful way and it started to spread, there were some people, as a way to push back against the 1906 Azusa Street Revival, who began to say, no, 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 1 Corinthians 10, 13, 10, rather. 1 Corinthians 13, 10. Up to that point, nobody had ever quoted 1 Corinthians 13, 10. And, and again, it, it's just, it talks about when that which is perfect has come, when perfection has come. Um, that which is imperfect. When perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. And so a more modern way of interpreting that is that the, that which is perfect is the Bible. And when the completed Canada Scripture was given to us, there's no more need for the gifts, and the gifts have ceased. That's what some people will tell you, and that might be some of your backgrounds. And thus, 1 Corinthians 13.10 is referring to the completion of Scripture, and thus the gifts are no longer available. But, but again, when you look at the context of 1 Corinthians 13, he's really talking about perfection being when either Jesus comes or I'm in his presence, one or the other. That's what perfection is. He's not talking about the completion of Scripture, because again, when you look at the context, always have to look at context. When you read verse 11 in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, Well, when I was a child, I talked like a child, and I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see, but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. What's that? Then we shall see face to face. Talk about the day that we will see Jesus face to face, which means either when he comes or we die to go be with him and we see him face to face, that will be then when there's no longer the need for the gifts. I don't need the gift of healing when I'm in the presence of the healer. I don't need interpretation when I have the interpreter here. But until that day, the gifts are still available as God distributes, as God chooses to distribute among the body of Christ all of his gifts or a variety of gifts, some of his gifts. And we all have something. You don't have to have a particular one to be marked uh, by uh, as being baptized by the Holy Spirit. But again, when you take what Peter says there, quoting Joel chapter 2, back in Acts 2, that the gifts of, that the Holy Spirit is poured out until the coming of Jesus, and you look at the context of 1 Corinthians 13, perfection coming is a reference to Jesus Christ and being in his presence, then I would submit to you that when you look at that carefully and you just open your heart to what that plainly says, you need to be open to the availability of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit even today. So not only does a critical examination of Scripture prove that, but again, just for those of you who like this kind of thing in church history, uh, all theological commentaries before the 20th century referred to 1 Corinthians 13.10, that which is perfect, as being the return of Christ. And nobody separated it as, oh, that's the end of the gifts. You can look at Adam Clark, A.T. Robertson, Albert Barnes, William Burkett, Matthew Henry, John Wesley... Now, John Wesley was my background. John Wesley embraced and believed in the gifts of the Spirit. It's just not taught as much in the Methodist Church. But John Wesley said this. He said, quote, The grand reason why the miraculous gifts were soon withdrawn was not only that faith and holiness were, now, were well nigh lost, but that dry, formal, orthodox men 
began to ridicule whatever gifts they did not have themselves and decry them all as evil madness. John Wesley was saying, the reason why people don't believe or accept and think that the gifts are legitimate is because they don't have them, and they're jealous. And then they decry other people who have them, and they make fun of them. But a good old the, the starter of the Methodist Church believed in them. Charles Finney, a, um, a Calvinist, is kind of a different Calvinist theology, but he described, in the, he died in the late 1800s, he described the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I just love this phrase, he described it as, Waves of liquid love. He said, when I, w- when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it was like waves of liquid love. So, back here in Acts 2, Peter then preaches from Joel chapter 2. He uses scripture to validate the experience. Very, very important. And uh, he continues to talk about Christ and Christ crucified. In verse 22... Back here in Acts 2, he says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man according, accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So he just preaches Christ and Christ crucified. And then if you just uh, uh, jump ahead to verse 37, it says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And then just to close out the chapter, let's read verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This, This verse, by the way, is kind of the foundation for everything that as I pastor Cornerstone, that, and I, when I look at what we need to do, what we shouldn't do, in ministries we need to implement, what we don't, this is, this is the foundational verse for all of this. Because the, the early church devoted themselves to a few particular things. Notice, to the apostles' teaching, which is the Word of God, and to the fellowship, that's the, where we get our Greek word koinonia, koinonia groups, our fellowship time, to the breaking of bread, that's a reference specifically to communion and prayer. That's the four important things the church needs to be about. The Word of God, fellowship among the body of Christ, regularly remembering communion and praying. And everyone was filled filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave it to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So, why don't I just kind of, I've said a lot in an hour. And uh, honey, if you either want to break down into your groups or I can hang around, we can do Q&A. What do you want to do?
Sometimes the Holy Spirit sounds just like you, though. I don't know. <laughs> All right, how about we do this? Why don't we take, like, 10 minutes for questions, and then you can have the last 20 minutes in, in group. Any questions? No question too dumb. Okay, okay. I'm gonna. I'll, I'm happy to answer this question, but then after I do, let's just keep it in relation to the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit. But but no problem. Okay. So in in, in Ephesians chapter four, it says that Christ gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. It's really not fivefold ministry because there's a a rule in, in the Greek grammar called the Granville Sharp rule, which means pastor teachers linked together as one particular role. When you look at the, at the New Testament, you see the giftings of apostleship, but you don't see an apostle by a title after the original apostles. And here's why. Because when you look at the qualifications for an apostle, they had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus, and they had to also perform signs and wonders. So unless somebody who's carrying the title apostle has had an eyewitness encounter with Jesus Christ, not just in my heart and I heard a voice, but an eyewitness encounter with Jesus Christ and perform signs and wonders, then, then I don't believe the title is legitimate. Do people have an apostolic gifting? That is to say they plant works and then they kind of pull away and they turn it all over to somebody? Yes. But as far as an office of an apostle, that's one thing that we don't see anymore because it has strict qualifications. Eyewitness of Jesus resurrected and performing signs and wonders. But you can still have office of pastor, evangelist, uh, prophet, uh, pastor, teacher, uh, but it has to be, um, you know, it has to be obviously defined by the way Scripture does too. People can go around and call themselves a prophet; <laughs> doesn't necessarily make them a prophet. And people who, who have the title prophet love to wield the title, but if they really had to follow the way the Old Testament regulations went, when they said something that didn't come true, they had to be killed. People wouldn't have that title as much. <laughs> yes, behind her, you had a question. It's just the difference between Joel chapter 2, which, which Joel prophesied, but Peter says now it's actually fulfilled, where the Holy Spirit comes upon all flesh. See, and so that came at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But when you look in the Old Testament, different examples, and it would often come at the time when uh, sometimes someone as a prophet or a king were anointed with oil. And they were literally anointed and oil would flow over their head. And so in the case of David, that's when it says he was filled with the Spirit. Even Saul, the first king of Israel, though he kind of went wayward, it says that he was filled. The Holy Spirit came upon him and he prophesied too. So there were different times when God determined... In singular situations, here's a king who needs the Holy Spirit. Here's a prophet who needs the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit was never available to the masses of the people until you get to this occasion here in Acts chapter 2. Yes.
Yeah, a prophecy is an evangelical tool, but sometimes people think of it only as foretelling the truth or foretelling the word. But prophecy, in its strictest sense, is forthtelling. And so a lot of times people only think of prophecy as somebody's predicting the future. <clears throat> no. A lot of times it's just simply the forthtelling of God's word. So there is, in that sense, honestly, I hope and, and trust and pray that every time I'm teaching from the pulpit, there's a, there's a prophecy, there's, there's the forthtelling of God's word that's going forth for God to do his good work. And tongues, because it is a, a prayer language that is unknown to the person praying it, praising the Lord, there's a natural byproduct the Bible tells us, where it becomes a self-edifying thing. It becomes just a, you get built up in your spirit when the Holy Spirit is interceding in a way that you can't put into words. There's another question, hands over here somewhere. Yes? Right. Okay, that's a great question. Okay, so I don't know if you could hear, but she was talking about the difference between receiving the Holy Spirit immediately or is it like, you know, over a long haul and what does it mean to pray and keep on praying and ask? And that is literally when Jesus said, uh, knock, seek, and ask. Knock on the door will be opened. Do you seek and it will be given to you ask? And, and it's in the present imperative. Knock and keep on knocking. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Uh, in fact, in... Uh, well, let me back up before because I, I don't want to get ahead of myself. In answer to your question... Luke eleven thirteen, Jesus says, If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will my Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? Very simple thing he says there. It's Luke eleven thirteen. So, receiving the Holy Spirit is just a matter of asking and receiving by faith. In fact, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul said to the church in Galatia, he said, Did you receive the Holy Spirit by observing the law or because you believed? By faith. So the initial receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit is simply, ladies, asking and receiving by faith in the same way that you got saved that way. Now, for some of you, I know in my story, when I got saved and I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I didn't have fireworks, I didn't, you know, bells and whistles, and, you know, the grass was greener. I hear people in their testimonies, and that's wonderful if that's your testimony. Grass wasn't any greener for me. You know, I didn't see stars in the universe, and, and all this. It was just, it was, it was a moment that I knew that I knew that I knew. But I didn't have any fancy things that went off. And sometimes when you receive the Holy Spirit, you're waiting for the bells and whistles, and it can be just as simple as receiving by faith like you did when you got saved. But having said that, uh, there is still an encouragement in Scripture. Paul says in Ephesians 4.18 or 5.18, where he says, Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that again translates, be being filled. There's the ongoing need that we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit, because it was either Spurgeon or Finney uh, who said, because we leak and we, we, you know, we just regularly need, we need, and I don't mean it some of the ways... Uh, but anyway, um, I, in a Holy Spirit way, we leak, and, um, and so we need that ongoing refreshing and infilling. It's not that we need to get baptized all over again, and we need a whole new set of the gifts of the Spirit, but we knew, need that ongoing refreshing work of God's Spirit. So yeah, there should be a moment in time when you ask by faith and receive and believe, whether you 
see bells and whistles or get a particular gift right then. You might get gifts later. The gifts might manifest themselves as you begin to just, you know, live out your life. Pray over somebody, all of a sudden they're getting healed, and now you, and you see that consistently, and you realize, man, maybe the Lord's given me the gift of healing. So not necessarily all at once, but pray ongoing and, and believe and receive. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, when did you know that you were saved? Yeah, you received the Lord in a personal way, and you believe by faith. But but how did you how did how did that bear witness that you? And the same thing will happen. You see, you'll know it because through the gifts of the Spirit and or the fruit of the Spirit. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, the fruit of the Spirit will begin to manifest itself more. And uh, a gift or a variety of gifts will begin to emerge in your life. The initial reaction, don't, don't always be, I mean, it's safe to say, I know I'm in a room full of ladies, but don't, don't always look for the emotional experience. All right. <laughs> I know you're emotional creatures, but don't always, you know, think that the emotion, there has to be this emotional thing. Because it can be just as simple as I received and I believe by faith. And now you watch as the Lord blossoms the fruit and, and manifestation of the gifts in your life. Leslie? There are actually three baptisms in the Bible. There's a pre-salvation baptism, which was the baptism of John. He was going around baptizing people before Jesus had gone to the cross, right? And they were being baptized in anticipation of Messiah. Then there's the baptism in the name of Jesus. And Jesus even, that was part of the Great Commission. Go therefore into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's a baptism into salvation. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a third kind of a baptism. Now, we don't, we don't experience John's baptism anymore because it's from the, since the cross, Right. That's a water baptism. He's speaking there in water baptism because in chapter 6, the whole flow is, is from chapter 6, verse 1. And he says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means we died to sin. How can we live it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The context really there is water baptism. And so when we're water baptized, it's symbolic of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But Holy Spirit baptism is going to be a separate work, the overflowing. Baptism, baptism that word in the Greek is baptizo. It just means overwhelm, overflow. So it can mean water overwhelm, overflow, or it can mean Holy Spirit. Am I answering your question? Ask me later. Okay. Yes, in the back. I'll get to you, Mary. Yes. Go ahead. Yes.
In Acts 1 8? In Acts 2 38? Right. Yep. Right. Okay, and I appreciate your question. When we interpret Scripture, we, we have to take the full context from cover to cover because the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So when you read a verse like in Acts 2.38 and Peter talks about, and you will receive the promised gift of the Holy Spirit, if, if that's all, then how do you reconcile the other passages, which are the commentary on the, on the Bible. So when you, again, when I first started in Acts chapter 8, you saw it was a distinct, separate work. So that's when you have to look at Scripture and go, okay, because Peter says this in Acts 2, but yet we see this in Acts 8, you have to take the volume of it and you look at the totality of it. And that's why I wanted to also sew together what Jesus said in John 14 and John 20 with Acts 1. Because he clearly talks about with, in, now I breathe on you, receive the Holy Spirit, but wait, there's something more. So again, when you look at all of it and you have to use the commentary of the Bible for the Bible, you, you can't just isolate Acts 2 or Ephesians 1 and say, I think that's all there is. Because then, then you, you can't make sense of the other passages that say that's not all that there is. Yes. And that's Luke eleven thirteen. Luke eleven thirteen. As simple as asking. Yes. Uh, Mary was gonna ask a question first, then I'll get back to you. Right. Yes. And but also live in us, I feel like the term counselor, for me, it's like mm-hmm. a convictor. Mm-hmm. You know, like the scales fall in its process. Mm-hmm. The things that I used to do are no longer, I no longer do or want to do, and the Holy Spirit is convicting me as I grow mm-hmm. Christian. So it's, it's an everyday thing, but also sometimes if we're in a group and we're praying and asking the Holy Spirit, Right. Somebody once explained it this way, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not as much about me getting the Spirit as it is the Spirit getting more of me. And there is a constant yielding of our lives and our hearts to the greater work of God and the fullness of His Spirit. And so you pray once, receive, believe, but there's an ongoing, again, that's, that's the Ephesians passage, you know, be not drunk with wine, but be filled, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Is it 418 or 518? I just went 518. Okay, thank you. And, and so that's the important regular 
just refreshing over. I mean, it's the same way. Look, I, you know, I, I got saved when I was 15. Does that mean I never again have to ask the Lord to forgive me my sins? I don't, have to, I don't need to get resaved again. I'm not saying that. But I know that there's enough about my unclean heart that I regularly want to come before him. Lord, cleanse my heart. Lord, you know, purify me. So it's, it's the same kind of relationship. You receive the Holy Spirit. You're baptized by the Holy Spirit. And by faith, you believe and receive. But you can regularly still be praying, Lord, fill me afresh with your spirit. Lord, you know, more of you, less of me. That kind of a thing. Somebody's hand was right over here. Yes. That's all right. Correct. Not necessarily. Now, again, Acts 10, it can happen concurrent, but in general, yes. Yeah, it's it's an external uh, act that demonstrates an internal relationship. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, water baptism is an act of obedience. It's not, it's not obviously required for salvation. I mean, I've never really put it one, two, three, like get saved, get water baptized and get baptized by the spirit, but I suppose you could. It's, it's a, you know, it's a water baptized. I'm surrendered. I'm saved. Pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I want to be empowered and be his witnesses. You could say it that way. All right, I'm going to, before I go back to other people who have already asked a question, go ahead. I don't, I think obviously he, he awakens your conscience in a greater way, but all of us are created in the image and likeness of God, which means we are all created with the capacity to know, think, and reason and to know God. And that's the soul. That's the soul. And that's the seat of human emotion and, and, and reason and will. So everybody has a conscience, whether you're a believer or not. Some people who have denied their conscience, it becomes a seared conscience. That's what the Bible talks about. But the Holy Spirit, I, I wouldn't say that is, uh, he's my conscience, although he has awakened my conscience even more. But we're all created with a conscience as part of our soul. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, I do too. All right, go ahead. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. You never see in Scripture, all I can tell you is, you know, and I've been around those circles too, you just never see in Scripture where gift of tongues was spoken as a word of admonishment or correction, with a, even with interpretation. Now, there might be a prophetic word that is spoken that, or a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge, but, but tongues... You only see as a form of praise unto the Lord. In fact, that's what they even say. We heard them declaring the wonders of God. They didn't say we heard them preaching to us, so interpret this. And so I would just, I would just say, you know, I know sometimes what we've experienced, but um, tongues in a public church service followed by interpretation that ends up being a word of exhortation to correct or admonish people, I would not define that as a proper exercise of the gift of tongues. Yes, honey? How do you teach on the gift of the Holy Spirit 
Okay. Yeah, let's do that. And it's not it's not me. I mean, we as we right. I know, but I just want. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I just but I just only wanted to say that I wanted to make sure that everybody knew that you know you can be alone, you can be. Yeah, and that, but I'm happy to pray for you and just to ask the Lord. And so here's what, here's what we should probably do then. Is I still saw a couple more hands, so I'll, I'll hang around maybe and just answer some questions privately if you'd like. Um, but for now, why don't we just close with, with prayer? And, um, and for those of you who'd, who might just want to receive the Holy Spirit and you've never prayed to receive... Maybe today's the day that the Lord would pour himself out upon you and empower you and fill you in a wonderful, fresh way. And for those of you who have already prayed that at some point today, maybe just ask the Lord for his refreshing work of his spirit. So why don't you just bow your heads with me and let's just pray together. And this is just between you and and the Lord, so I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands. Just make this your own heart cry. I know for some of you, you, this is, and some of you have very graciously shared that this is not really what your background has, has taught you. But even right now, what does the Holy Spirit bear witness to your heart? Is he available for that outpouring work or not? It, does he desire to do his overwhelming, flooding work into your heart and in your life or not? And if you believe that he does and that he's available today, then Jesus said, you, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? So just ask him right now. Lord Jesus, we come before you. We thank you that you are the baptizer, that you even said that you would give us the comforter and the counselor to come alongside of us, and that he will testify of the things that you have said to us, Jesus. We want you, Jesus, to be exalted supreme. We want you to be honored and glorified. And we thank you that you have given us your spirit, that we would be empowered in our lives to live out the Christian life with an extra measure of power and strength and grace. And whatever gifts you choose to give us, Lord, that's up to you. We just open our hearts and our lives to be available to whatever gifts you might want to pour out. We want the the fruit of the Spirit to be evidenced in our lives. We want love to be supremely the evidence that we have been baptized by your Holy Spirit. So, Father, move among us as you did in in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And just begin, Lord, to move among us And to pour out your Holy Spirit to empower us, Lord, to refresh us. You do your good work, Lord, in our hearts right now. And ladies, I'm just going to pause in my prayer and you just with your heads bowed, just make it your own prayer right now, just where you're seated. And you can just just pray just specifically, Lord, baptize me with your Holy Spirit. Come upon me. Just make that your prayer. Fill me, Lord with your Holy Spirit. Pour out upon me whatever gifts you might want me to receive. Grow your fruit 
the fruit of your Spirit in my life. Let people be able to see the love of Jesus Christ as evidence of your Holy Spirit in my life. Fill me to overflowing. I want everything that you declare in your word, Lord. Nothing more, nothing less. The fullness of your Holy Spirit. And you invite us, Lord, you say, that if we ask that you will give just as graciously as a father gives good gifts to his children. So, Lord, we ask. Come upon us, Lord. And by faith we believe and receive. And we look forward to whatever gifts or fruit you might manifest in our lives. In Jesus' name.